Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chang. Welcome back to our Food and Faith Podcast listeners. It is a joy to have you. And for the first time in a while, I know we had the band back together for our last pod, but we get to do an interview today with the whole band back together. And that is very exciting. And so welcome, Anna. Good to have you back. Glad to be here. Home life treating you well? It's it's treating me well. Yes. Slightly Wonderful. deprived, but so excited to be here for this interview today. Wouldn't miss Absolutely. it in the world. <laughs> and Derek, what's going on, buddy? I, I am doing well. I'm also excited for this morning. And um, yeah, it's, it's always better when, when we're all here. So it is a joy to have both of you here for this interview. And I want to begin by introducing this interview a little bit. Um, Derek had asked all of us a while back, just in his own way, sort of who is on your Mount Rushmore of interviews? And I'm very pleased to say that today we get to interview one of mine. We are so excited to be joined by Dr. Ellen Davis, whose book Scripture, Culture, and Agriculture has been critical to all of us and to so many who listen to this podcast in the inspiration of agrarian, farm, and garden projects, preaching, and advocacy since its publication in 2009. And so we could not be more excited to be able to host you for a conversation around ideas around agrarianism, around your book, uh, Climate Change, and the work that you continue to do. And so, Dr. Davis, it is an absolute joy to have you on the pod. Thank you so very, very much. Thank you so much. It's an honor and pleasure to be with you all. And so over the years, there have been so many questions we wanted to ask about the book, and so we'll spend some time there, as well as discussing its legacy and how this move, how this movement has changed since its publication, and what you might continue to encourage all of us who are involved in this food and faith movement to um, to pursue. Uh, so just by way of bio, uh, Ellen F. Davis is the Amos Reagan Kearns Distinguished Professor of Bible and Practical Theology at Duke Divinity School. She's the author of 11 books and many articles. Her research interests focus on how biblical interpretation bears on the life of faith communities and the response to urgent public issues, particularly the ecological crisis and interfaith relations. Scripture, culture, and agriculture, an agrarian reading of the Bible, integrates biblical studies with a critique of industrial agriculture and food production. Biblical prophecy, perspectives for Christian theology, discipleship, and ministry explores the prophetic role and word across both testaments of the Christian Bible. Her most recent books are Preaching the Luminous Word, a collection of her sermons and essays, and Opening Israel Scriptures, a comprehensive theological reading of the Hebrew Bible, a lay Episcopalian. She has long been active as a theological consultant and teacher within the Anglican community, especially in East Africa. Her current work explores dance, poetry, and visual arts as modes of interpreting scripture. So Dr. Davis, as Sam has said, your work has influenced all of us, and um, I have returned to scripture, culture, and agriculture time and time again, and so it's just such a such an honor and a joy to be um, actually in voice-to-voice conversation, because I feel... I feel like I've been in conversation with you for years, but you didn't know it. (laughs) So um, we're so grateful to have you here. So we always start off our podcasts with the same question, and that is to ask about your geography. What is the land, the food, the plants, the music, the culture that has formed you, um, and the culture that and that is is informing you and so you can start that question wherever you want to jump in um what is what is the geography that has has formed you and brought you to this place and time okay i'll start it in my childhood um i grew up in 
what is probably one of the most beautiful places on the planet, the San Francisco Bay Area. I grew up in an, on an island in the Bay, not Alcatraz. Um, <laughs> we were very much oriented to what was around us. So probably as children, when we weren't in school or in bed, nine or 10 months a year, we were outside. Um, and a lot of that time barefoot. So garden, trees, um, the whole island was sort of lightly tended wilderness, I would say, in my childhood. Um, and now that I have my own garden, which is lightly tended wilderness, I realize how much that someone said to me a couple of weeks ago, this is an unusual aesthetic. Um, and it doesn't, I live in the middle of a city, um, but it looks like a, a very tiny woodland. Um, and I realized that's what I grew up in. Um, I realized as I got older, more looking back than uh, after my family had left that island, what a fragile environment it was. Mm. Um, it's changed hugely in my lifetime, due in large part to a long drought in California. Mm -hmm. um, and so the domestic landscapes changed. Um, and, um, it, and it's also changed socially in my lifetime when I lived there, it was economically a very mixed area. I could not afford to live now where I grew up. Um, and so it's it's just made me aware of, it was probably the first thing that made me aware of accessibility of land and also attitudes toward land because having grown up in the Bay Area in the 50s and the 60s, um, I was just at the end of the time before people thought about where they lived as real estate, mm -hmm. uh, which is to say as a commodity um, to be made, you know, on which one makes money <laughs> and passes it on. Um, so in many ways, it shaped me. I would also, uh, you asked about food, of course, I grew up in a family where people cooked their own food. We, you know, it was we would eat out on a birthday sometimes, um, and that was that was pretty much it. Um, and I, the, the concept of wasting food was something I didn't encounter until I was an adult. Um, my and I would say we largely ate fairly locally. Um, not, I mean, my parents didn't grow their own food and we didn't have a place that would have been suitable for that. But we ate a lot of California food, San, San Francisco food, you know, sort of salami and Parmesan cheese and olive oil and you know, those kinds of things. Um, and fresh, fresh fruits and vegetables. So I wasn't conscious of participating in a food culture that was just not 
a concept anybody had. It was just the way you ate. Uh, but I now realize it was a practical and quite well-functioning food culture in which I grew up. And maybe the other part I would mention of that is that um, the churches I attended as a child, first in San Francisco, then later in uh, Belvedere, um, were very beautiful structures, very beautiful liturgy, liturgy that tended toward Anglo-Catholicism, probably. In one case, it it got there, and in the other case, it just sort of tended in that direction. Um, but I've often said that the churches in which I grew up were the spaces that taught me how to pray. Hmm. They were deeply quiet, simple, but very beautiful um, redwood poured concrete um, interiors. Um, and so they were they fit the space in which they were located very well that's that's beautifully said and all of a sudden i feel very left out because derek is our uh, our san francisco guy having spent some time in school there and anna's our newly uh, appointed episcopalian <laughs> so oh. <laughs> Oh, I also, um, I, I grew up on a small island in Northwest Washington, and I really resonate Which one? Uh, Guimas, out in the San uh -huh. Juan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my cousin was the vicar of the San Juan mission for many years, and we oh. had friends on Guimas, so yes. Oh, yeah. small world. Well, <laughs> my dad will be listening to this podcast, and he'll want to know who those friends are, but we can do that offline. <laughs> um, but I just resonate with that. Um, connection of feeling the the um that shift i mean i grew up in the 80s and 90s on you know, on glimus island but i could i couldn't afford to to live there now um and just that that way that this piece of land that you i think there was some part of me that thought well if you grow up on a piece of land if you grow up in a place shouldn't you always kind of have like access to it or that connection to it and and seeing that shift and change is um it's kind of profound, but also for me, I feel like there's a, there's a loss there. There's a, um, and certainly a loss that uh, is not unique to our situations and, uh, and, you know, and acknowledging that there's a different kind of privilege even that, that is, is there, but um, the, the watching of a space over time and, and, and seeing how, how those, the accessibility and also the, um, Maybe the attitudes towards it, or the 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 way it's held, changes. Um, is I, I don't know. I, I find some grief over it almost. You know. Oh, absolutely. Topic. I'm working with a doctoral student now, who is writing on gentrification in Central DC, mm -hmm. uh, where he pastors, and um, this is a in a community that has been there for a hundred years, largely African-American. Um, and because of gentrification, exactly the same thing that happened to my family in Belvedere is, is happening in that community. And of course, as you know, this is um, why many people are selling their farms. Um, so it's, it's happening throughout our economy. And I think, grief is exactly what 
people. It is a kind of exile. Mm. And this is this is a beautiful jumping off point um, to discuss, um, you know, your your book around land, um, and of course the legacy of scripture, culture, and agriculture continues to grow. Um, every time I pick up my volume, I remember that I was on a plane to Minnesota to attend uh, the Collegeville Institute to learn a little bit about writing, and I didn't know anything about you or about the book, and I spent my time reading it as I was flying. And as I'm getting ready to go to this creative writing seminar, I'm like, who is this person, and where have these ideas come from? It was was so inspiring for me that it intersected at that space um, and has done so much for my own life um, and just the way that I think about stuff. But one of the questions I've always wanted to ask you is where did this book begin? What inspired you to begin digging into land and agriculture as a critical theme of Hebrew scripture? Two places. Um, one in my life as a biblical scholar and one in my life as a Californian. Um, so the biblical scholar part was I was teaching at Yale Divinity School at that time. Um, and it was the it was about 19, it was 1992. And it was the first time I had taught the year-long Old Testament interpretation class, Genesis through Chronicles, you know, the whole schmear. And um, we got to either the midterm or the final um, exam period. And one of my doctor, we were making up the exam and one of my doctoral students said, you need to ask a question about land. And I said, why? And he said, because you talk about it every single lecture. Hmm. And I was not aware of talking about land at all. I was, I thought I was talking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So, um, and so that was the first thing that drew my attention to the fact that you cannot turn a page in the Bible without coming across something about earth, soil, water, mm-hmm. um, sky, animals, whatever. But I just hadn't, I had not been conscious of that fact. And so I decided at that point that I would teach a seminar that I called a biblical theology of land or a biblical ecology. I couldn't decide which. And so I sort of different times called it different things, but really to follow up on that idea and see what was there. And I taught it for several years before I found the center of gravity, um, as I see it in the Bible. And that that has to do with land and agriculture. Part of the reason I didn't see it sooner is because I don't have any agricultural experience, you know, in certainly in my own lifetime. Uh, and and then the other part of it is, as I said, as I said, I grew up in a a landscape very very much like the landscape of. Um, Israel, 
Um, Israel is the size of New Jersey, but it is the geography of California hmm. condensed into New Jersey size. Um, so a land that is very prone, as we know, to drought, um, erosion, uh, rich soil, but uh, certainly the land, in the land of Israel, the soil is measured in inches, not in feet. Um, and so a landscape that is easily damaged, um, as is California, and a very up and down landscape. All of these things are part of the fragility of California. And I remember it's, it was about that same time um, I went to visit my parents who had moved away from the Bay Area up to the wine country, so to a more rural area, but a place that I had known a little bit as a child. And a friend, I don't drive a car, so a friend had come and we were taking a drive to places I would not have been on my own. And I was seeing highways passing in front of farmhouses that I remembered, um, but with small roads, not highways running sort of at the doorstep. And, and I realized how precarious that landscape was, in this case, more socially than geophysically. Um, and that was traumatic for me. And I returned to New Haven, where I was teaching, and um, and saw a friend who had also been in California that summer, and we were lamenting together. And he said to me, has God forsaken the world? And I said, no, but he's mad as hell. Um, and so that sort of motivated me to activate this seminar mm. and... And then once I got the traction in agriculture, and as I say, that took a few years, um, I, um, I went to the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas. I met mm -hmm. Wes Jackson. Um, Wes asked me to do some teaching for his interns, to do some writing for uh, the Journal of the Land Institute as a biblical scholar. But yeah. that was the language he, he wanted that language in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Wes always speaks about extending the boundaries of consideration. And he wanted, yeah. he wanted the Bible to be part of that. Yeah. And to hear that for me is really, really inspiring because so much of the literature we produce around this movement, especially around farming come is often from the pen of a of a farmer and sometimes it 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 feels like a defense of a lifestyle that maybe you know hasn't been fully thought through and so for someone so one of the things that was so inspiring for me is, is a biblical scholar to use the word agriculture to use the word agrarian and to say that these aren't just metaphors which is one of the ways that i find they're often preached you know it's just a metaphor of sheep or you know the the hebrew scriptures are full of just metaphors 
horrors of land care. Um, when in fact, there's there's a there's a beautiful and complex literalism to it that to be a faithful um, to be a faithful child of God means to faithfully care for land and take that into consideration as part of one's piety. That's what blew me away. That wow, this is not a farmer from a traditional agricultural background who is who is putting these ideas into the world. I would only say in response to that, that I think that we have, and this is not personal, I think it's true in a um, culture altogether. I think we have an impoverished notion of metaphor. You know, metaphors, we think of them as sort of fancy optional uh, things that you add to make your speech a little more interesting. In fact, they're very often ways of expressing something that cannot be expressed it is the most precise way to express something. Um, and metaphors, of course, reflect reality directly. Hmm. They don't convey if you don't know the point of reference. Hmm. That's really well said. And I think it's one of the one of the places where our, our theological education um, can help us if we if we're really allowing ourselves to expand our understanding of what metaphor is. Um, so I went to San Francisco Theological Seminary in San Anselmo, and my professors would often tell us um, that because of the microclimates of northern northern California, um, that it is actually the best place to study scripture because it's so much <laughs> like uh, so it's so much like the geography of of Israel Palestine. Um, I, I'm I'm really interested, and, and you know, so much of of when I started seminary, we were given a list of. I, I remember this very vividly. We were given a list of terms, terms that you might. Um, you might come across as you're doing your biblical studies and agrarian was one of the terms. What year uh, was that? If I might ask. Yeah, that was 2007. Um, and, and, and it was such, it was such a, th- <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest. And maybe this is just where I was as a student at the time. It felt like such a throwaway list. Um, but agrarian was just kind of one of those terms on a list of maybe 25 terms that was uh, here's a word you may come across in, in your studies. Um, I'm really interested in hearing from you. How how do you define the word agrarian, and and how how were you impacted by um, what what surprised you about um, the agrarian nature of scripture as you got deeper and deeper into thinking about these ideas? Um, I'm very interested in your saying that it was 2007 when you encountered this list because as I was thinking about my own experience teaching in this area I thought 2007 exactly that year is the year that I began to notice the conversation conversation changing amongst my students And I think it was because in 2005, the United Nations report on um, land land degradation, or I I won't remember the title of it, but it was a 2005 pretty major United Nations report that identified agriculture as the primary 
factor in the degradation of uh, land globally. Mm -hmm. And that report published in 2005 hit the Duke University Library in 2007. And I noticed that I'm not saying that all my students ran out to check it out at the library, <laughs> but it was at that time that I, um, I, I used to be invited to speak to the incoming students um, because my dean thought this was an important topic. And it was 2007 when I came into the room and I looked at the students and for the first time said, I'm wondering if you need me to tell you that our food system is broken or if you already know that and what you need to hear from me is how does that connect with the Bible? Mm. And they said, we know that. Just tell us how it connects to the Bible. <laughs> and, you know, two years before, that would have been new information to them uh, or any time before that. So it's a little bit of an aside, but I think it's um, I think it connects to the moment of your own theological education, perhaps. Um, and so you asked what was the surprise for me and how would I define agrarianism? Mm -hmm. In a nutshell, agrarianism is first the perception and then the living in accordance with the perception that human life is in and flourishing um, are inseparable from the lives and flourishing of non-human creatures, mm -hmm. both as we would say, I don't know that the biblical writers would accept these categories entirely, but both what we would call animate and inanimate creatures. Uh, I think the biblical writers had a wider sense of um, animation, so to speak. So the rivers can clap their hands and the hills ring out for joy and so on. Um, and I think that's a perception. That's, is that a metaphor or is it a perception that we are in a living world that is capable of responding to its creator? And with the possible exception of the human creature. Um, because as Jeremiah says, um, the heart is sick above all things and twisted who can know it. So, um, uh, so that's a beginning definition of agrarianism, a perception that runs all through the Bible. Um, a part of that certainly is recognizing that um, every single one of us depends directly on the flourishing of the earth and the non-human communities of creatures that it supports because every single one of us eats and drinks. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, uh, the biblical writers lived in a world where you couldn't just go to a shop. <laughs> um, and so they all knew what was involved in 
uh, raising food. Um, and the surprise for me, I think, has been how pervasive, the first surprise has been how pervasive this awareness is in the Bible. Mm. Um, if there is not directly a, com a, a commandment that refers to it, I mean, uh, you know, one of the 10 commandments, there's certainly many commandments that ha have to deal with how you treat land. But if it doesn't arise to the level of one of the 10 commandments, perhaps the reason is because everybody, it's like saying, don't forget to breathe. Um, it was so obvious that why would you mention it? Um, and I thought at the beginning when I taught this class consciously the first time, as I say, I guess I was lecturing on it unconsciously, but when consciously I sat, sat down to line something out, I thought I was going to pick or have to pick very carefully the relevant passages. I could not have been more wrong. Hmm. Uh, and, and that only gave me a stronger sense that I'd reached, sort of inadvertently, I had reached to the core of how the Bible thinks. And I'll just say one other thing about this. It goes back to Wes Jackson. When I decided to focus on agriculture, I went down to the Soil Sciences Library, the Yale Undergraduate Library, the Soil Sciences section of it, because I knew that if I went to the Graduate Library, it would be beyond me. So I was just reading the shelves in the Soil Sciences shelves. Uh, um, and there was a title that I pulled off the shelf. And the thought that formed in my mind is whoever came up with this title understood how the Bible thinks about land. And the title is Scripture, Culture, and Agriculture. And it's a collection of essay essays edited by Wes Jackson, Wendell Berry, and Bruce Coleman. Uh, I'm not sure I'd ever heard of any of them at that point. Um, but that's exactly how the Bible thinks about land that the land meeting the expectations of the land, the land comes first, the land has a right to expect something of us, um, and we must meet that expectation. Mm. I have so many thoughts swirling that are rising from sharing, but two, two threads that I just want to pull on a little bit more um, from what you shared. One is I'm, I'm struck by that image of students coming into your classroom after 2007 and already knowing the food system's broken. And I would say that, I mean, my guess is, is that that's even more the case today that you know, students come in and say the food system's broken and there's a racial component and there's a poverty, even if they're like the, 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 the brokenness of the systems is something that there's a there's an awareness of, which I mean, I think that's a positive thing that that's more of a collective awareness. Um, and then so the answer is, what does scripture have to say? And I guess what I'm curious about and what because what I find in your writing is um, and in, in, you know, what I would have heard you share is that there's this constant cycle and circle of I need to know more about soil science so that I can study soil in the scripture. Oh, 
the scriptures are all about land. So I need an agriculture. So I need to learn a lot about agriculture. Like there's this, there's this loop of saying these, these are not separate. Um, but I, I hear also that there needs to continue to be a movement. Um, I'm making a circle with my hands, but our listeners can't, can't see that, but there needs to be this continual cycle of scripture, real world, if you will, or, you know, here and now world scripture here and now world. And so I'm curious, um, maybe it's in your classroom or in the, in the work that you're doing with students and in conversations, um, how are you seeing that come to play as people come in aware there's a problem asking what does scripture have to say about it? What's happening next? Where, where, where is that trajectory going in that circle out, out into the food systems, out into what agriculture looks like today? Um, do you have maybe some, some stories or examples or things that you're excited about that are, that you're seeing in that, in that circle? Yeah. Um, Maybe the most direct answer to that question is that I have just in the last week completed a class that I was teaching with my colleague Jerusha Neal, professor of preaching here at Duke Divinity School. And our class was called Hope for Creation? Question um, mark, an exilic perspective. I spoke earlier about an exilic perspective on, we spoke about that um, with respect to where we had grown up. Um, And the class was about preaching in view of climate change. Uh, And we took a whole canon perspective. So we started in Genesis and we ended in Revelation. Um, And I'm answering your question with respect to my own work, because I think that the reality now is that the kind of awareness that was maybe a little sparse on the ground when scripture, culture, and agriculture was published in end of 2008, it's now uh, widely known, as you've said. And what surprised me in that class is that, well, I'm not sure it surprised me, that most people in the class, we certainly did not have to convince them that there was a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, But what they lacked pretty much to a person, and there were 30 people in that class, was specificity about how to speak about these issues Christianly, so right. to speak. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they as one person said, I knew there were some chapters in Genesis and maybe in Exodus that, you know, we could trot out for this. I had no idea that it ran all the way through scripture and deals with the central doctrines of the Christian faith. Um, there was a, um, a print uh, put on my steps last night by one of my students. So, um, well, I guess yesterday. So uh, we found it uh, before going to bed. And it's a print of two 
human, the shape of two human feet with holes in them, uh, but the feet are made of green growing things, but they have their wounded feet. They have nail holes in them. And there is, there are drops um, dripping down from the feet and below is a garden plot. Mm. Um, it's very powerful. And the, and the student said, who was a climate activist, so certainly knew more actually about the issues than I did going into the class. Um, but going into the class, he said um, that hope, he would roll his eyes when he heard people speak about hope mm-hmm. um, because he knew that meant optimism. Mm. People would speak about it. And he said, I now see myself as my role as a climate activist is to be an agent of Christian hope. Mm. Um, and he said, this picture represents very much of what I now understand about incarnation, resurrection, and the life of the world. Hmm. Wow. Oh, yeah. I just that reframes everything. I think I think when we see the the brokenness, it's so easy to become paralyzed. You know, I think this is such a such a common experience of, well, you know, the whole climate change is devastating this is an emergency it's all going down there's what can I even do and and that's what the Christian tradition and what religious traditions I think in general can can help to hold is that that frame that there's something that there's something some bigger holding it but also that we can be part of that that healing, that resurrection, that acknowledging, that grief, that, you know, that, that there's, there's some way to actually hold and process through. Um, and so that there, there can be hope. <laughs> um, it's power. And there has to be. Ah. Yeah. Um, because, because we are alive in the world that God has made. Mm-hmm. Um, and we believe that God is doing something in and for that world mm. more than we can desire or pray for. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and this notion of hope, I'm I'm struck by it because I took the occasion in preparing this morning to go back and read the postscript to Scripture, mm-hmm. culture, agriculture, and one of the last sentences, and I do not mean to quote your words back to you, but I was struck by a line that I didn't remember was in the book where you said, I believe that the Bible as a whole tends towards a tenacious but severely chastened hope. Mm-hmm. And that that felt so much, it felt like it encapsulated so many of the conversations that we've had that it is not a rosy optimism, um, that there is something very gritty and earthy about that hope, that it's not simply a, a hope towards ease, but a hope of restoration, which also, you know, which involves a process. And so I, I, I wonder what a severely chastened hope looks like for you. Well, the picture, of course, I mean, one thing I could just mention is it looks like my students, um, because my students 
most of them are in their 20s, early 30s. Um, I'm toward the end of my life, but they are relatively close to the beginning of theirs. And you can't say to people in their 20s or 30s, there's nothing for it. It's a distasteful age. You know, it's, um, and so hope to me looks a lot like my students as they face the problems directly and take on the responsibility of speaking into those problems. I mean, that's why people go into debt to go to divinity school, uh, so that they become competent to do that. Um, it's cheaper to ignore the problems. Um, but I'll tell you the I had forgotten that that sentence was in scripture, culture, and agriculture. It's all good. I understand. <laughs> but when you read it, what came, the picture that came to my mind does not have directly to do with our topic of food and faith and agriculture. But I thought of a very close friend of mine who's a rabbi in Southern California. And some years ago now, um, he went to Auschwitz uh, for the first time um, and was led through Auschwitz. Uh, this was some years ago, um, was led through Auschwitz by somebody who had been in the camp as a prisoner. Um, and my friend said to him, how can you do this? And he said, um, Hitler is gone. I am alive. Am Yisrael Chai. The people of Israel lives. Um, he wasn't saying it. He he wasn't talking about his personal life, but about his life as a representative of the life that Hitler and the Third Reich were determined to destroy. Um, and so um, that to me is, and my experience in general is that Jews do not, the, the notion of individualism does not have the same death grip on the Jewish consciousness as it does on the North American Protestant consciousness. Um, it's, I am part of something larger than myself. And I think that if you're gonna be hopeful in this area, you do have to um, enter pretty fully into participation in something much larger than you are. And I I think that that leads us to this this 
idea of land and food as connection, um, one of the things that we have been shifting towards in this podcast is we we've talked a lot about food production and and food access and food justice. But one of the things that we're we're getting back to and thinking about is is eating itself and how eating is in fact um, uh, a part of our spiritual life, and so. Uh, I'm interested in hearing from you. What does it mean to say that eating? You, one of the things that you've said is that eating is our uh, our most fundamental and consequential cultural act. And, and I'm in- interested in hearing what that means for for you. That that eating is really um, one of the core th- ways that we live out our our faith, our values, and what it means to be connected to one another. Yeah. Good. Um. There's a phrase that has become very common, I notice, and that is people speak a lot about grabbing lunch. I think that is the opposite of what I want to suggest. Hmm. Um, It's the idea that food cannot and should not be grabbed. Um, and the, the Latin word culto, um, means, it means to worship like, like the word cult. Mm -hmm. Um, but it also is, um, it also means to grow something Mm -hmm. and avad in Hebrew means to worship. It also means to work something, including to work land. Um, And so I think in any culture prior to a fast food culture, the idea of grabbing a meal was incoherent because you spent most of your time um, trying to get that meal on the table. Um, and the Bible comes out of a very hungry world. There's a reason that um, the chief miracles have to do with healing and feeding um, because people were sick because they were undernourished. Um, and they were undernourished in part because they were sick. Um, and um and you never counted on enough food to go around. So to me, that's the, that is the fundamental misconception in our culture. And the first thing the Israelites have to do when they cross the Red Sea, the first thing the people Israel in freedom has to do is learn to eat within the limits that God has set. Mm-hmm. And they're not good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm struck by the, this. I, I had to write this down. Um, the Bible comes out of a very hungry world. Was, was is such a 
a profound statement that you just made and 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 I, and I want you to continue to build off of it because I'm just thinking about uh that that passage from Ezekiel that the sin of Sodom was that they were overfed and, and so you're you're actually going in this direction so I'm sorry for cutting you off but okay. I'm just I'm just really I'm really just blown away by that that statement so please I'm sorry continue <laughs> I'll just receive that as a comment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But but Sodom is appropriate. They are overfed and therefore they are unresponsive to the needs of the stranger. So ultimately the sin of Sodom then is inhospitality. Yes. Um, And similarly with the Amalekites, the quintessential enemy of Israel who does not give Israel food and drink when they are in, you know, when they're passing through their territory. Um, There are many, um, there are many, many echoes of this. We are, we're an overfed society to a great extent. Again, the amount of wasted food in our society is um, it would, it's a sin, it's a, an immense source of shame, and it would be incomprehensible from a biblical perspective. Likewise, I've, you mentioned in introducing me that I've spent quite a lot of time teaching in East Africa. And while I um, certainly acknowledge geographically that your teachers were right about San Anselmo being a very good place to study (laughs) the Bible geophysically. Um, It is not culturally, um, Mm. doesn't have much relation to the biblical world. Very true. East East Africa does. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, a culture in which uh, food can never be taken for granted. Um, my deepest experience is with Christians from South Sudan. And I remember in 1996, when I first began teaching um, the person who became Archbishop Daniel Deng um, Bol Yak, the Archbishop of Sudan and South Sudan, um, he was a baby bishop, as they call them in the Anglican communion, when he came to study with me. And I remember asking him at that time, I was teaching at an Episcopal seminary um, where we were fed lunch every day. And, um, and I said to him, do you, do you like it here? Because, you know, it was a... It, it was, we were very, very well cared for. And he said, oh, yes, I love it. It's the first school I've ever attended that was not destroyed. Um, this man was from South Sudan. He'd lived through 50 years of war at that point, and he was only 55. Um, and uh, he said, but sometimes I don't eat lunch. I go to my room and I cry because I think about my people. And I realized that they don't have lunch. Um, And that was very helpful to me. Um, It was at a 
I'd been teaching about 10 years by then. So I was deeply enough in to know what some of my major concerns were. And um, it was 1996, um, long before scripture, culture and agriculture, but not before I was concerned with these issues. And I found that year I had um, the person who became the Archbishop of Sudan and South Sudan and the person who became the Archbishop of Rwanda, both of them baby bishops at that time in my class and lecturing through the Bible in their presence made me focus very much on what was important. Mm-hmm. I figured if they'd come all the way from those desperate situations to sit in my classroom for a year, then I'd better have something to say. Thank you for sharing those images and those stories. I think this will be sitting with, I know with me and I'm sure our listeners, um, we've touched on hope and what brings you hope. And maybe it's quite appropriate that I so we circle back to that after those striking images of of hunger and of of um, what is what is important enough to to travel and dedicate your life and how to it and and how how do these these explorations of scripture actually are essential and um, and integral to questions of of hunger and of, of humanity. Um, but we do want to circle back specifically to hope as we, as we wrap up today, and maybe I'll, um, I'll frame the question more specifically because you've given us some beautiful examples of what gives you hope in the the big picture. Um, but I just might ask what, what is bringing you hope today? (laughs) What to maybe this morning, um, what, what is it that, um, helps you to to keep going and and we always often say it's not the kind of hope that ignores the the grief and the struggles of the world but the kind of hope that as you said so beautifully earlier is actually um, what's drawing us forward and that reminder of of that love of god that draws us forward so um if you're willing we'd love to hear something that's bringing you hope today i'll mention two things um One is that um, it is a beautiful morning in Durham, North Carolina. Um, And as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, um, I've our garden is sort of a small wilderness area. Um, May is a very beautiful time in North Carolina. And so there's something, this piece of land that I have been tending now for 20 years. um, And it had no topsoil on it when we came here. People literally had come and our house is a new house um, on a site where there used to be a house, but people had literally come and removed the topsoil with wheelbarrows. So there was nothing when we started. It could not sustain an earthworm. Someone said to me, um, she came to visit and she said, there are no weeds. (laughs) 
there's no soil to grow weeds. <laughs> um, we have plenty of weeds now, I'm happy to say. Um, but we also have plenty of earthworms and birds. And um, it's that, so that gives me, uh, it gives me joy and encouragement. Um, it also has, we left our trees and the trees had, and we don't pick up our leaves. So the trees have gradually begun to restore a little bit of um, the, they've begun to restore the landscape and I've tried to cooperate with that. And my husband and I have tried to cooperate and that's been pleasing. The other thing I'll mention is that I began this morning um, uh, our daughter is visiting us for the first time in 18 months. That gives me joy mm -hmm. and hope. Um, and she's very fond of lamb and um, doesn't get it um, with her family. And so I went out this morning to go to the halal market to get lamb. This being Ramadan season, I knew that they would have it. And the store was closed at nine o'clock. Uh, when it normally opens and um, but it actually sort of pleased me because we're entering the last week of Ramadan it's a very tiring time to be fasting and I realized I'm one of very very few patrons of the store who would not be fasting mm -hmm. um, and so I just thought about my friends and the fact that the central certainly one of the five central observances of Islam, fasting in Ramadan, is the whole thing is to be conscious that eating is a contingent activity. Mm. It's contingent upon the grace of God. Mm. Uh, and to be willing not to eat, as we would say, normally, for 30 days out of a year, eat or drink, no matter what the temperature, and it's going to be very warm in North Carolina today. Um, and I just thought um, it was testimony to me that this is hard on my friends' bodies, and they do it anyway. And um, I will go back after we finish this, and I'm sure they will be open by then. But it's, <laughs> it gives me just a little bit of connection uh, with a world in which religious observance, um, in which religious observance and eating are indissolubly bound together. Mm. And that gives me hope. Mm. Well, Do Dr. Davis, we want to be mindful of your time. Um, and, uh, and at the same time, we, we, we want to, we, we just want to say thank you. Um, we and all of our listeners have sat at your feet um, and learned from you and so much that you have contributed. And so we pray that your sort of takeaway is just a huge thank you from us and from our listeners for all that you have done to move not not just individuals, but entire communities of faith forward and opened our eyes to the way that land weaves its way through um, through all the pages of scripture. And so, um, we, okay. so again, we just want to say just a tremendous thank you, not to mention thank you for coming on the pod. I'm still kind of going, I can't believe we're having this conversation right now. So thank you so very, very much. Um, one of the ways we want to return. Oh, 
One of the ways we like to return that thanks is we want to point people to your work um, in, in, in whatever way they can and just continue to have folks interacting with you and, 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 and the places where you are and the work that you are doing. And so are there places that you would instruct folks to go to, um, books that you've read or opportunities to hear you? Um, where, where can folks connect with you? I'm not very good at that. I, only, <laughs> I have the energy to do the stuff, but not to keep track of it or advertise it. So, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you that particularly. Just tell people to read your books. It's, that's, um, that's a beautiful offering. That's where most of my energy goes. Wonderful. Well, again, thank you so very, very much. And, uh, and, and perhaps our crawls will pass again, um, as, as these conversations continue to develop. And we look forward to that conversation in the future. Thank you. Thank you. God bless your work. We are excited to invite you to a free conference this summer. It's called Sustaining Church, Reimagining Communities of Faith in a Climate Crisis. The aim of this conference is to bring together theological thinking on creation care with those that are actively growing or starting Christian communities that care for land. The hope is that this will be the first of many conversations that inspire further theological thinking around caring for creation, as well as an opportunity to network and empower localized growing communities of faith. The conference will be held over Zoom, so even though it's in the UK, you can take part. Some of our keynote speakers will be familiar to fans of this podcast. Nuriel Love Parrish, Ellen Davis, and Norman Worsba, just to name a few. A full list of speakers and tickets can be found at www.hazelnutcommunityfarm.com. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep Until. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.